Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. We're back online together, recording again. I feel like we've hit a, a, a little bit of a, a, a hot hand. We're, we're striking while the iron's hot, and we got uh, some fun guests lined up that you, we've already recorded, but we're here together, and uh, we're, we're ready for another episode. How are you, bud? I'm good, man. Hot hand indeed. Always double down on 11 or something like that, and that's what we're doing yeah, like- today. That's right. Let's, uh, you know, it's uh, the holiday season, right? We're kind of embarking on uh, all that stuff and, um, you know, finding a few extra bucks in the pocket, you know, extra watch purchases, gift giving, et cetera. So any, any way that we can, uh, you know, grow the honeypot, let's do it. A hundred percent, man. Uh, I may actually be buying another watch soon. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see how that goes, but we'll, we'll talk about that after. Well, this would be for my wife's, she's got a significant birthday and I'm thinking about getting for her your something. wife. Got it. Got it. Got it. Right. I did something right. recently like that too. Yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> I mean, you know, she wants a tank Louis, but I mean, I'm sure a, you know, a midsize Santos would be fine. Yeah. yeah she doesn't I like it. Would... I know somebody who'll wear it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we do have a special guest on, so we, we, we won't spend too, too much time chit chatting, but I just wanted to ask you real quick, what, what's new? Anything, anything uh, fresh in your world uh, that you wanted to chat about? You know, not too much since our last uh, our last tete-a-tete. I mean, I was happy to see that we had some good feedback on that episode. That was, I think, you know, we were about due after 70 plus episodes to have a, a bit of a drunken rant. And it, that was uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, but otherwise, yeah, not too much, man. It feels like the the year is definitely winding down. Work-wise, things are, are very frenetic. Um, but at the same time, it, it feels like not so much like the the planning part of things. It's like this is the final part of a long year of execution, and you know I can kind of see the finish line. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, um, yeah, something similar on our on my side on the on the on the work work side of things. But uh, just yesterday, I was able to head over to see our friends at Feldmar. They were doing their seventh annual Soul Meller Blood Drive. So I went over there to say hi to everybody, hang out, donate some blood. Um, man, they do it right over there. What a, what a cool event they do. Um, obviously it's bigger, you know, it's more meaningful, um, to everybody over there than, than just throwing an event, but you know, they had Seiko, uh, USA, it it was partnered in to help sponsor it. They had an awesome spread. They had the yeasty boys food truck. So awesome bagels. Oh dude, those, Um, yeah, that's a good food truck. The bagels and schmear. Oh man. Yeah. I did the deluxe. I think so. It was the schmear and and uh, and locks and on a maybe on sesame seed, but it was bomb. Um, they were doing a raffle, which I think they'll probably announce, you know, over the next couple of days or whatever. I hope it was successful. But uh, big thanks to everybody over at Feldmar for hosting everybody for a real fun afternoon, and hopefully uh, Cedars Cedar Sinai was able to, you know, catch a lot of blood and and use it for really important stuff. So I know it's a big event for those guys. They did an awesome job. 
Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you showed the flag for us on that event. Yeah, super fun. Uh, oh, and they had the Seiko uh, museum pieces out. Remember, we saw some of them at that Seiko event about two years ago. Um, so yeah, they had all their, all, yeah, but it was expanded. There was three, they had three cases, basically. I, I took a bunch of, of uh, shots, so I'll share them with you. But it was a very, very cool thing. You know, original Willards and, um, you know, all the fun stuff. 61 Mosses and, every, or you know, everything. Cool, man. Well, hey, you want to introduce oh. our guest? Yeah, absolutely. We've got a real fun, a real fun one in store. Um, I think somebody that mo- most folks are probably going to be familiar with, but you know, we've been lucky enough to to convince him to to jump on the pod with us. I don't know what we did. I don't know what we promised him afterwards. If we need to put something in the mail, uh, we'll do that. But uh, we're we're lucky enough to be joined by none other than James Lambden. Uh, of analog shift fame and also part of watches of Switzerland. Love to get into a little bit of what that means for him and and how that looks these days. But of course, that's been he's been pumping on that for a few years now. So without further ado, James, welcome to the Spirit of Time podcast. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, glad to be here. It's an honor and a privilege. <laughs> I'm gonna that maybe I'm gonna need to have you send some of these these yeasty boys bagels my way, and just so I can see what that West Coast bagel business is all about. You know, being a New Yorker, I'm skeptical. To be fair, yeah, there's something about the the, the water in New York that makes, um, and I think actually, like legit, I think that is kind of part of it, right? That makes the bagels so good, and makes the pizza so good. That's what they say. I, I I'm a believer. Matt, you've had the Yeasty Boys? This is the first time I had them. I knew of them, but that's the first time I had them. Have you had it before? I had it from the truck once. This was uh, several years ago, um, and they were near uh, back when I had a, a large account um, in Hollywood, You know, one of the big hospitals that I go to over there, ch- well, Children's and uh, in Los Angeles. And I just stopped and I saw it like on a, on a whim, pulled over, grabbed something. I never do that. I think I've, I've done that maybe like three times in the past 10 years. It, it was good. It was James. Good. Um, yeah, All right. I, I, All right. I grew up on the East coast too. So I have a, not in New York. So, you know, you have a, certainly a very, you know, a perspective on bagels, but, um, it was good. Uh, so when you're out here, you know, maybe, right, uh, keep it on the short list. We'll try it. We'll try. I'll see what the fuss is all about. Not the first time I've heard about it. So, you know. <laughs> all, oh, all right. All Let's right. See. But when you're in New York, I'll show you how it's really done regardless. That's right. Oh, what was, what was the, what was the, the, the viral TikTok that was going on? Wasn't it somebody from LA trying to get a bagel scooped in, in New York or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it was a little bit contrived, but I, 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 I'm not on TikTok. So, you know, I saw it probably weeks later when it hit Instagram. Uh, but yeah, it was, you know, some sort of, um, you know, L.A., uh, you know, artistic artistic type uh, who came in with a long re- list of requests and, uh, you know, scooping. And I think the guy just basically told me, get the fuck out. It was pretty good. <laughs> I didn't even know what scooping was. I had to Google it. I'm like, who the who scoops a bacon? What is this? Uh, if you're watching I'm not going to lie. I don't probably- know what it is. You're supposed to, you know, it's like, it's the idea of having like a, a lighter carb bagel. I mean, how about not have a bagel if you're watching carb? <laughs> I don't know. Skip the some things. Okay. They literally like just bagel, yeah, less, the middle of it. Less of a bagel. Yeah, less on. of a bagel. Bagel light. Well, then yeah, just, just eat half of it. <laughs> <laughs> and another, you know, they, they usually split them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, true. 
It was another yeah. on a long list of sort of like LA caricatures that I just sort of sigh and just like, oh, is this really what we have to perpetuate? Is this so ridiculous? Well, but listen, guys, if, if you want to, you know, truly understand, you know, where these gross generalizations about different types of people originated, it's New York because every stereotype truly holds up here. And it's, it's one of the things where we, we wear that like a badge of honor here. <laughs> it's true. It is true. I grew up in Philadelphia and, and it's it's a similar but different mentality. And you wait like you said, you wear it as a badge and it's it is, yeah, it is right. what it is. It's yeah. It's like survived Philadelphia, I think is what it says. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Man, I don't have anything even remotely as cool, you know, being a uh, a suburban Los Angeles guy, Chicago transplant. We're we're very nice in Chicago compared to you guys. You are. <laughs> Chicago has some very very nice people. I like uh, I like Chicago a lot, and good food. That's right. Actually, That's yeah, right. Chicago. I I haven't been in a few years, but Chicago downtown has always been sort of one of my favorite big cities in North America. Definitely, definitely, and and a banging watch scene. I mean, the, the, the Chicago collector groups are no joke. Got some good you know, interesting people. Yeah, great watches. Yeah. Yeah, that's not something I've ever been plugged into to be able to kind of comment on, but good. I'm glad to hear my people represent supposedly, uh, you know, the upper Midwest kind of sleeper, you know, the uh, Minneapolis people, you know, with mm-hmm. Heaton and stuff. And you know, um, by the way, I finished that book, Greg, I'm going to bring it to you, Sweetwater, so you can read it. It's good. It's a fast read from our buddy, uh, yeah. Jason. I James, haven't, have I haven't got my copy books? yet. I, I, you know, of course, I, I'm a very dear friend of mine, and so I've been uh, keeping in touch with him throughout this whole incredible journey that he's had, and I'm so proud of him. And uh, you know, to to reach the level of success that he had with his first book, which was banging, um, and I'm really excited to read the the next one. I, I, you know, I ordered it the day it came out, and I think I even got a shipping notification. But uh, that's it. That's I have to check into that when we're done recording here. Where's my Where's my book? Huh. We need, this man USPS. needs some reading material ASAP. <laughs> yeah, true, true. And no kidding, you should be on the galley list. Get all the uh, the the first copies like hot off the presses. Just go directly to the the friends of the author, man. Yeah, you know, I I, I don't like to uh, get any favors. I like to support support people who do great work. So yeah, you know, Substack yeah. and uh, and anything my friends create, I I buy. You know. Speaking yeah, no, of, of uh, speaking of buying things, why don't we run, run into a uh, a wrist check? I don't know if any, you mentioned earlier you're going to potentially buy something, but I'm curious what's on everybody's wrist, uh, given we are a watch podcast. Right. Yeah, we're 10 minutes James? in. Why don't we start? James, do you want to lead us off? Yeah, a special yes, guest uh, always goes first. I just realized I'm not wearing any of the watches, though. Uh, they're They're all right here on my desk. I probably have about... Uh, 13 or 14 on my desk, but let me, let me see here. What did I, I just took this off to sit down and, and record with you. So I guess this is, um, this is the one we'll go with. This is a, uh, vintage Doxa sub 300 T shark hunter, uh, Aqualung. Mm, nice. Cool watch. Cool watch. Um, but this one has a little something extra, uh, which I thought I'd share. I, I don't think I've shared this with anybody yet. So, uh, uh, this is this is a pretty neat watch, guys. I'm not going to be able to get this through to you on this uh, on this monitor, but this watch actually has confirmed military provenance. 
from a, a rather unlikely source uh, because the back is engraved with the, um, uh, the issue number and the um, initials of the Jamaican Defense Forces. And this would have really? been, uh, which I assume is sort of like a coastal patrol uh, kind of situation. But yeah, and it dates to the the late 60s, uh, early 70s, and um, was actually able to acquire this with period service paperwork um, from a local repair shop in, in Kingston, Jamaica, uh, with the, the uh, you know, Jamaican Defense Force care of Sergeant uh, so-and-so right on the paperwork from a bracelet repair dated from the early seventies. Uh, so I get a huge kick out of that. Um, never seen another. And, uh, it, interestingly, it has the U S divers, uh, logo on the dial, which means it's a U.S. market watch that was probably sent down to Jamaica, um, you know, from a retailer, which I just, I just love. So if I've got this right, this is like commercial acquisition, but for, you know, military issue and it's, it's stamped or engraved accordingly. That's right. That's, that's, that's awesome. my, that's my belief. Uh, that's unusual. To, that's cool. It's, it's super unusual, but I absolutely love it. It was a bit of a time capsule. Um, so I don't think it saw much in the way of action, but, uh, the bracelet was in a thousand pieces. So I, I, I did replace that with, uh, one of my stash and the bit of loom in the seconds hand is has dropped out, but it's got pretty epic patina. I really can't tell if you can see any of that, but, uh, you know, I have a thing for Doxa. So yeah, you do. Yeah, man, that is rad. That is really, really interesting. Pretty cool. Yeah. Is that a personal watch or is that going to be an analog shift caper? Yeah, it's, that's an, that's a, that's a personal watch. Yeah. There's uh, (laughs) a, You know, I, I started this whole thing to justify buying all the watches I ever wanted, um, because if you call it inventory, it's not really a, you know, a quote unquote problem. Uh, but, you know, the the years go by and the the inventory keeps growing on both sides. How about that? That's fair to say. And I think I've heard you, you know, call yourself one of the great justifiers uh, of all time. So, or, you know, now I can see clearly how that how that would be. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I've never met a dollar I couldn't talk myself into spending. <laughs> and that's another thing we have in common. <laughs> hey, what do you I guys want? Well, I uh, I'll lean into the whole. So you know, people can't see this, but I'm wearing it's not not the correct kind of red and blue um, Magnum PI shirt, but I think everybody knows if uh, if you follow that I've had that magnum pi vibe challenge thing going with a number of people around the uh the watch community for the past six months so this is just love by the way i love uh, that you do that i'm inspired by it and i that's fantastic hey what you drop in a few uh a few posts from time to time you're more than welcome um but for the watch uh i don't have the the actual gmt master so this will have to do this is the uh the tudor black bay gmt the the pepsi watch it was kind of a choice between that or the, uh, oh, come on, man. The C quartz, the momentum. I got that recently and that's kind of a a fun reissue. So it was going to be one or the other, but this kind of matches the shirt still feels very glee summary. And that is what is on the wrist. It's something that makes me think a lot about uh, a recent trip to Hawaii. And yeah, this was a good time. I have, when this was released back in, I should say when it was announced back when they still had Basel, Mm -hmm. um, in 2018, I woke up early in the morning, saw it. And the first thing I did taking account of the time difference 
was called our friend Mike Pearson, who was for a, a narrow window of time was basically like a sales director at an AD in Texas. Mm-hmm. Said, "Hey, are you going to get this? Put me on the list right now." And this, Mike this is good for that him. sort of thing. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's another great enabler. Oh my god. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yep. Yep. So that's what's on the wrist for me. How about you, Greg? Um, on the wrist, I have an early seventies Omega Seamaster Cosmic 2000. All right. Um, I've seen a, a number of these actually, it's funny. I, I feel like I tried to grab at least one or two from analog shift at some point, um, and just wasn't able to, to snag them before they, they went out the door. And so, but they just, it like seared into my brain that I had to acquire one at some point. And so, um, I just love this watch, man. It's one of the first, like one of the early vintage watches that I just really lusted after. It's, this is the one, James, that has that sort of stepped dial yep. um, with those huge, you know, hour markers. Um, I've got it on this sort of herringbone strap. So I'm leaning in very, very much in the opposite direction of Matt with the, uh, you know, still sort of, you know, tiki magnum vibes and I'm um, going sort of full winter. But uh, yeah, I love this watch. It's in great condition. It's a, uh, it's, it's pretty pretty, pretty minty, but there's certainly some like fair, fair bit of uh, a patina that makes it, I think, honest. So, um, just a rad those watch. Are, those are really neat watches with that sort of stepped outer track and, and those oversized sort of, um, they're sort of beveled indices yeah. there. There's a lot going on that sort of architecturally on the dial that really elevate the whole thing. And, and it gives it a, um, a little bit more of an industrial look to a fairly dress, or daily kind of um, oriented timepiece. It's a cool watch. Good work. Yeah, thank you. It's a uh, it's a neat one. I almost gave up after a while when I couldn't find one, but I'm glad I stayed the course because uh, the payoff is always there when you do, right? Yeah, I mean that's you know I like to think that what I do for a living is exactly what I would probably be doing if you know I wasn't getting paid, which is I just treasure hunt stuff all the time and. Um, yeah, I get a little itchy if I if I don't buy you know a watch at least every day. So <laughs> it's, it's just it's only a problem if I keep too many of them, you know. But uh, yeah, some of them have to go up for sale. Well, I, Greg, I've seen that watch. Obviously, I've seen that watch before. And you know, uh, James, he's not lying. It is it's very minty. I mean, it's it's yeah. not you know fresh out of the box, but it is extremely clean. And it's one of those things where you look at it and you say, yeah, this is this is going to hold up and look good forever. That watch. Herringbone strap is a cool vibe too. I um, I'm I'm a big fan of the herringbone. I you know I remember seeing it on the last reissue of the Railmaster. Uh, yeah. I think it was a, an OEM option. I'm like, wow, that looks really fantastic. I had never really considered it before. And um, yeah, you're right. It's a cool look. Definitely a cool look. I uh, I actually opted to put some herringbone seats in uh in my car instead of doing houndstooth, which was very common. Uh. So I, I've been I've been sort of eyeing the accessories, you know, in the herringbone space. Like, what could I get that would evoke the seats of my car without me looking like I'm dressed like my car? Right. <laughs> so maybe I, maybe I should look at a strap. That's a good idea. Is this the nine twelve? That's right. Yeah, yeah, the green car. Very cool. Very cool. That was the oh, last time I was in LA, and I didn't get the bagels, but I did get the car and and uh, picked it up and, and drove it home earlier this year. That was my next question is, is the road trip that you had planned. Um, 
So we might have to get into that. So, you know, by way of background, though, maybe we I think everybody knows, you know, James and sort of what what he's up to and and about. But could you just give us sort of like the 30,000 foot view of sort of who you are, what you do? Um, You know, we've heard you on a number of pods and and been back channeling with you and uh, including, you know, our mutual friend and and one of our pod alums is uh, uh, Wesley over at Standard H. You know, you've been on there a few times and, and those are always great episodes. But maybe just give us sort of the quick, you know quick pitch on, on sort of who James Lambden is. Oh man. Uh, it's just, it uh, feels like it could get philosophical. Um, starting to well, question, I'm questioning everything right now. <laughs> we could get existential. I know you like to do that. I do at times. It's true. It's true. Uh, it depends on how much caffeine I've had or, or not had, I suppose. Uh, but fortunately I just fueled up. So, um, yeah, so I, uh, Wow, I I guess I've I've become a little bit of the um, the old guard of the new guard in in the the watch dealer generations. Uh, all the people I learned from were old enough to be my father, um, and love them very dearly for taking a chance on a kid from New York who was going to use the internet to uh, talk about vintage watches. You know, and they're like, "All right, kid, we don't know what you're doing, but uh, we we like your vibe." So here we go. Um, but yeah, I, I launched Analog Shift uh, over a decade ago. Actually, l- l- yeah, going on 12 years ago now. Um, mostly because, as I said earlier, I wanted to um, find a way to justify all the watches I wanted to buy and, and what better way than to be a dealer and call it inventory. But um, that came after a, a time working in outdoor equipment and apparel industries, working in the automotive industries, both of which were, were passions of mine um, that were somewhat deflated, uh, as, as passion, um, working in them. So I, I had to look at myself pretty hard in the mirror and say, all right, watches have been a hobby of mine for a decade at the time. Uh, do I want to risk ruining it all by opening the hood and seeing what's underneath and how the whole thing works. But ultimately I, I made the decision that it was something worth exploring because I was going to do it for myself. Um, and launched Analog Shift really with the idea of being a little bit of a blend of content and commerce at a time in which you know Instagram was sort of entering its first summer, and um, the idea of having a click and add to cart feature uh, on your vintage watch website was very, very modern. And, and um, we may have been the first. Uh, I'm not sure that we were, but we were right on that leading edge of, of sort of changing the conversation. But I also, my point of entry into watches was always about the story, you know, and design and mechanicals and, and a little bit of a lifestyle flex or investment were all things I was aware of, but I love stories that come with watches and whether it's the specific uh, provenance of a particular watch or whether it's more of the story of how that watch came to exist in, in the world, what the point was, where, where the, where the influence came from. Those things they they really they have a really romantic appeal to me. Uh, so when it came to time to talk, to talk about these watches, um, that that was our primary angle. So we became known very quickly as the the guys who'd write a couple thousand words about you know a six hundred dollar uh, vintage Seiko, you know, and <laughs> we do the same for anything. Uh, and then roughly the same time I, I began writing about watches for a couple of trade publications and, uh, lifestyle blogs and all that sort of thing, which gave me a, a level of connectivity and access to the industry at large that, um, I'd love to tell you was planned. Uh, but it wasn't, it was totally organic. And as a result, I, 
I think I had a, a level of access to the industry through wearing that other hat that you know most of my other dealer colleagues you know have never even attempted. And then on top of that, uh, you know, I got together with the uh, the brains and and muscle over at Red Bar and uh, and became the co-founder of of the Red Bar Group with uh, with Kathleen McGivney and with Adam Craniotis. Uh, so there was the community element, there was the sort of professional dealing element, there was the, um, you know, the writing and, and I, I hesitant to call myself a journalist, but that, that sort of angle, um, to the industry and it became all watches all the time. And, uh, somehow, uh, I'm still here doing it and, and really enjoying it. And, uh, the marketplace has changed a lot over the, the past few years, but, I think analog shift has found its place in in that in, in a global way, um, and we're 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 still going, having a pretty banging time. Yeah, I remember actually, you know, first coming across um, both the uh, like the presence on the gram, and then also the website. I probably one led me to the other, but appreciating, you know, you sort of jokingly refer to writing up a a, a large quantity, right of of words <laughs> for, yeah. you know, a, a, what, what might otherwise be looked at as kind of a garden variety vintage watch sale. Yeah. But that's really how, I mean, a lot of people learn, you don't really realize as a consumer, when you run across this stuff and you have an opportunity to look at something that just has a bare description versus something that reads more like the Jay Peterman catalog. And, right. you know, you, you, you start to embed all this stuff when you see these things. And there's a, there's a huge value add to the, to the website as far as I'm concerned, um, even if you're not buying anything, you know, just, just scrolling the listings and, and, you know, reading some of the content, cause it, it shows there's not only is there a lot of knowledge there, um, but you guys care enough to, you know, to do what you need to do to educate people is at the end of the day, I mean, not to sound mercenary or whatever, but a, a, that's what makes it fun, but it's also what makes it sell. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, we have at times burdened our customers with too much knowledge um, in the short term, and they're left kind of scratching their heads going, am I making the right choice? But I've always felt that um, a really well-educated uh, customer is going to be a, a really great customer for us in the long term. And it's pretty easy to, you know, at a very high level here that your client wants a Submariner or wants a Speedmaster and just say, here it is you know, give me your credit card. Um, and that's how a lot of the industry has worked, um, you know, for many, many decades. But I think giving them a chance to explore the nuances between those models or looking at alternatives and understanding where this comes from and what's important to consider when making a choice without imposing too much of our own taste into the matter or opinion into the matter, although that does creep in. Um, may result in them, you know, taking their time to think about it. But then when they come back to us for that watch or another, they're going to, they're going to know more. And then they're going to understand more, um, as to why we have the watches that we have and, you know, the, the curation that we've made, um, uh, and they'll understand it. And that's really rewarding. Yeah. I've heard you describe sort of what you do is, uh, you know, in the, in, in the group is sort of blue jeans and beers, not champagnes and champagne and red carpet. You know, I think that speaks to a lot of us too. And, 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 you know, you marry that together with sort of the content and sort of, you know, the stories around these things. It's just a really welcoming place. It's a place that you want to be. Well, I mean, we're not saving lives here, guys. 
you know, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're maybe enriching them a little bit with some great stories and great objects, but, um, we like to refer to ourselves as luxury, uh, with a lowercase L. That's a good way to put it. I know, you know, personally as somebody who's been in the hobby for, you know, compared to a lot of people, kind of a long time, but I'm not super well healed. There's plenty of really neat, exotic, expensive stuff that I'd like to have and don't. But um, there's something appealing about the idea of, I don't know how, I don't know really how to describe this, but as somebody who looks at the website and has followed you for a long time, I don't get the impression that despite the fact that my guess is you probably have or have access to, you know, some of the, the hypest of hype pieces, you know, from, you know, Trinity brands and, and, you know, uh, uh, ultra premium Rolex offerings and all that stuff. I still think of you as a Doxa guy, you know, or a five digit GMT guy, or even a four digit GMT guy. And it's that, you know, I, the, that blue collarness that is so cool. And well, that's, thank you. that to me thank is you. what's, you know, appealing is you can go and learn about a, an Audemars Piguet, but at the same time, it's, it's in an environment where you're going to feel, um, like you're not out of place, you know, wearing a, uh, a Seiko diver from the seventies. I think, thank you for that. I'm, I'm very happy to be the doxa guy. I'll take it. Um, it was my, uh, sort of my point of entry into vintage and really has had a, uh, a fingerprint on everything that analog shift has become. Um, of course we are now owned by watches of Switzerland. Um, and we operate as the vintage and pre-owned department for, for the group, which has, um, enabled us to have a tremendous access to resources that we could have only dreamed of, you know, in the early days. Um, but they've, they've allowed, uh, and encouraged even the brand to really remain true to itself. Um, and I think that in, in a word is, is that we care about authenticity, not just in the product, of course, but in the way we, um, the way we do business, the way we talk about the watches, the way, uh, the, the collections that we curate, um, in so much as, you know, our taste does have a place, um, in what we're doing and saying and, and, and pontificating about, um, and then personal taste, uh, you know, have certainly expanded, and that's something that I've, I've uh, come to embrace. I think over the years, I, it was, there was a time. It doesn't seem that long ago when the idea of having any watch with gold or diamonds or some high complication or something very formal or something idiosyncratic and asymmetric and brightly colored seemed a little bit uh, off brand for my own style, but now I am totally leaning into all of those things. And I think that's just an affectation that comes with, um, many years collecting watches. You, you start to go, all right, I passed over that, um, because I thought it was, you know, not my style, but what's that all about? And then you start digging into it and you find something to like, because, you know, we have a sickness and we love this shit. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you have a, a, you know, crazy hour color dream Frank Muller on your wrist. And you're like, wow, this is cool. What the hell happened? <laughs> was, I saw one what's, of those recently. Part? Was that you that posted that, by the way? It could have been. It could have been. I, I'm actually on a huge Frank Muller kick. So uh, I, I'm really eating it up. I think they're, you know, the 70s and the 90s stylistically are very in right now. And I don't think there's anything more 90s than Frank Muller. Um, and they did neat stuff and they're, they're great value and they're, they're high design and they're, they're paying homage to, um, you know, the sort of 
Gondolo Pateks and the, the pre-war American tonneau cases. And of course, they, sorry guys, that they had a huge influence on RM, which came a little bit later. And uh, the RM guys don't love that, but it's true. I, you know, look at the look at the use of materials and colors and the case shapes, and uh, there it is. You know, they, they and then I don't know. I mean, I talked to I I didn't come to New York until the early two thousands, but I talked to collectors and enthusiasts who lived you know here in the nineties, and like make no mistake, before before Panerai ever became a big deal. It was a it was a Frank Muller in the nineties. Like if you were rocking a master banker walking down Park Ave, you were the shit, and I love that. And, you know, I love that. I've been I've been like secretly not secretly like sort of in the shadows trying to find a salmon dial Casablanca that really like fits what I need. You know what I would like, and uh, I I think they're super cool. Because I love Tano Case too. It's just a, it's a fun thing. It's a fun thing. Well, hey, I want to interject with a question because we Greg and I have a kind of a. a list of some things that we wanted to chat about. And if Greg, if you don't mind, just because it's a good entree, you, you know, James mentioned, you know, the nineties are, are so hot and it's such an amazing time. I mean, we did an episode, what Greg, probably at least a year ago where we sort of did a draft of, you know, the best watches from the, you know, the nineties and maybe, you know, 2000 to maybe 2002 ish. Um, what are your, I don't, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but what do you think are some of the coolest and let's keep it to like sports watches or, or, well, I don't know, maybe not. What are, what are the coolest things that are out there that people don't realize yet are cool from that era? Cause Neo vintage seems like that Neo vintage now feels like vintage was about eight years ago. And, yeah. You know, I guess maybe that's because Neo vintage is just another word for about to be vintage. Yeah. Future, um, future vintage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, realistically, if you look at something that was made in 2000, I mean, that's nearly 25 years ago. And I think you know, there are some people like real Rolex heads would say, well, if it isn't like mid eighties or older, it's not, it's not vintage. But to my way well, of thinking, like 25 years is, is vintage. I, I, yeah, I, so let's for just one second, let's talk about the semantics behind that and understanding that it's entirely subjective. And, and my opinion, you know, means nothing, uh, in the, in the realm of, um, you know, the entire community. But when I started, uh, analog shift, you know, I sort of had to make this decision, what, to, what constitutes vintage and then what's just, you, you know, pre-owned. And it started with, uh, the idea that I didn't consider myself vintage. So it had to be older than me. Uh, <laughs> in that case, it meant that vintage meant that it was really anything produced up until, um, you know, 83, uh, then the sort of marketplace evolved and, and I started looking at materials uh, and case construction and things like that. And if we use Rolex as the sort of bellwether or the, the blue chip to follow here, which I think is fair, um, we look at, you know, matte dial production on sports watches sort of tapering off right around 1983. Um, and then it's, that's when it became glossy with the applied white gold indices. But then... They kept using tritium as a luminous material, you know, through 1997 or eight. Um, so it became tritium and classic oyster case, pre-maxi case that defined this sort of neo-vintage thing. And then the moment you start using uh, Luminova, Superluminova, Chromalite, what have you, that was, that was a new watch. It was a pre-owned watch. 
But then we have the fact that every day that goes by, something gets a little bit older and I'm maybe starting to get vintage myself. So vintage may now at, or, or will soon at some point include all of that tritium stuff right up to the late 90s. And, and it, as you said, Matt, I mean, maybe we just say it's got to be 25 years old or 30 years old. Because for me, when I first started using that term, um, I don't think I made that one up, but I honestly can't find an earlier reference to it either. So maybe, um, I think it was about having a material that would age and would have some patina over time. And, you know, super luminova, you know, is going to stay crispy white for thousands of years in all likelihood, um, because of the way it's, it's, um, comprised. So at some point, we're going to just, there's going to need to be a new nomenclature for these things. And I think it's probably is going to be more about time. It's probably going to be more about how old the item is. But just to put this in perspective, when I started, it was a little bit easier to say, this is an era, this is an era, this is an era. But going forward, you know, we're not that far away. In fact, we're probably right about there in 2023, 2024, that a 25-year-old watch has Luminova on it. And yeah, I don't know. Is that, is that a pre-owned watch at this point? Or is that, that, that's starting to sound vintage. Yeah. I have a Swiss only Explorer and you know, that's kind of that, uh, which is uh, to say an Explorer too. And Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, exactly. That's that, you know, one or I think the lore is one, but realistically it's probably two or three years spanned. Right. Um, you know, where it's Luminova, not Tritium, not Super Luminova. But to your point, and I was going to offer that as like a counterpoint, but you, you, I think you nailed it. 10 years from now, we may still have Maxi Case, Sapphire Crystal, and, you know, Super Luminova or Chromalite. Um, and it, yeah, it, at some point it's like, okay, that, that, this era is probably going to go on for a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank and, God, because more people care about watches, uh, mechanical watchmaking today than at any other point. Um, so, uh, interesting nineties watches. That was, that was a question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly. what we were getting. That's what we were getting. You know, before you, I, I'm going to make another, I'm going to put a fine tip on this too. It reminds yeah. me sort of like what people are talking about with like classic rock now. And all of a sudden they're trying to like, just like you said, I like the idea of finding new nomenclature, right? Because now I'm hearing people say, oh, well, we're just going to start inserting like nineties, you know, rock into like, it, that's classic rock now. Like, no, it's not classic rock was really easily definable in the eighties and nineties, you know, in the nineties and two thousands, because we knew exactly what it was. Like you said, it was a certain set of time periods, you know, and now all of a sudden you can't just start lumping things in because it's convenient. It is past, right? They're, we're talking about songs that are 20 or 30 years old. No, they're not of the moment, but I like what you said, just find some new, you know, some new verbiage and just place things appropriately by their, their time frame or their or their age. I, there it is. There it is. Um, here's one that just jumps to mind. Uh, a watch that I also, I, I'm not going to lie. I thought was utterly ghastly. And, and then some one day I just woke up and I looked at it differently. I squinted at it in a weird way. And all of a sudden I wanted one. Uh, and it's the, uh, it's the 1990s Breitling Chronomat. Um, replete with those sort of, you know, conical, uh, grooved weirdo chrono pushers and all that two-tone gold indices on the, on the, on the, uh, on the compass on the, on the bezel and the UTC module on that horrible looking bracelet. Like a barnacle. Yeah. How cool is that thing? I want it. 
So it's, I remember, I mean, cause I'm of an age where that I was, you know, around and starting to like watches when those were cool. And then it's, you know, early to mid two thousands and I'm, my taste has evolved and I'm, I'm starting to, you know, actually collect. And I'm like, I can't believe I liked those things. They're, they're ghastly. And now Absolutely. I'm like you, I'm like, oh man, I want one. <laughs> yeah. Like I wonder, I, you know, Greg, I, I went on to the, um, the website for, uh, for Feldmar for pre-owned because you were, you were there yesterday. So I was like, oh, I wonder what they have. And they have like, you know, what looks like an early nineties, early aerospace. Yep. They it's do. Like, oh man. Add, add to cart, add to cart, add to cart, add to cart. <laughs> well, I mean, and then you have, um, you have some sort of modern day icons as well that I don't think people realize are quite as old as they are. Um, IWC thirty seven fourteen, the Portuguese chronograph. That's mm-hmm. 25, 26 years old. That that came out. I think I think it was nineteen ninety eight, wow. uh, right? And that's just your classic forty millimeter chronograph, Valjoux seventy seven fifty. Um, that's been around. That's been in the catalog the entire time. I mean, they upgraded it a few years ago with their own sort of in house variant of the of the of the Valjoux and and so on. But I gotta say, there's a that's a, become a, an iconic piece, I think. So that's a fun one. Um, AP was doing a lot of weird stuff in the 90s, their, their classic line, and they did the a whole bunch of throwback, short run sort of heritage things in very low volume um, that no one ever thinks about or, or talks about. But I have this cool, I just got it in, uh, white gold. I think it's a 34, 35 millimeter classic line um, ultra thin manual wind micro tapestry dial, uh, with a textured bracelet and kind of a, like almost like a disco volante case. Um, super cool. The wheat team, another one, the chronographs and those pretty horrible, you know, with a big Audemars Piguet engraving right on the bezel. Um, but kind of cool. And then you had the, the birth of, or the rebirth of, of, of a you know, there's, you know, a brand that I care a lot about. And, um, uh, in many cases I have gone on to say that, you know, there's a, a watch brand that I like everything they make. And if you go back to the nineties, that's really the the beginning of the modern day s- chapter in Longa's history. So, you know, nineties weren't so bad guys. There was some cool, cool stuff going on for sure. Yeah. Nineties IWC is uh, that that sings to me? I love that stuff, and I. It's funny that you mentioned that the Portuguese, just the classic, you know, North and South registers. Um, Greg, our buddy Mike Heyman has one of those, and I think he's one of the only people I know, you know, personally that's got one. That's one of those things that has always kind of spoken to me. Where I my entree to IWC was Aqua Timers. I've had several of them, and I just I feel like you know after the, I think it was the. 3568, you know, which is like two generations ago. Um, but after the GST style watches, I just, I feel like they kind of lost the plot and I'm, I'm just not really as down for the brand as I used to be. But whenever I see the Portuguese, I'm like, oh no, yeah, they're okay. They just, they've keep that's quietly soldiered on as probably one of the best things, maybe the best thing they make. I completely and utterly agree, Matt. In fact, if there's any listeners right now who have the following watch in their purview or their personal collection, please call me. You remember the Michael Mann, Jamie Foxx, Colin Farrell, Miami Vice? Yes. Okay. 
there was an IWC tie-in, and I think it was Jamie Foxx's character, um, who who uh, Tubbs, who played, who had the uh, the thirty-seven fourteen. So there was a big marketing tie-in with that film in two thousand five, two thousand six, whenever that came out. That was right around the time I moved to New York. And I remember I walked into Torno and, you know, tried one on and they had 0% financing for, you know, 12 months or something like that. I almost did it, but they made, I think 50 or a hundred with the Miami Vice engraving on the case back in deep relief. Otherwise it's just your standard 3714. I need to have this watch. Um, <laughs> it's the, it's, I have to have it. Uh, because it has the, old, is up. the OG Miami Vice logo on the case back. Uh, I came very close once. We had one offered to us uh, online. It arrived. It looked like this guy had thrown it through a wood chipper. Um, I still, I still offered him way too much money for it. Uh, but I think there's like some auction in you know Germany or something that got like some obscene number for a mint condition one. And that's what he was basing his request off of. So uh, we didn't come to a deal, but I was, I was ready to pay him a fairly obscene amount of money for, for a 37, 14, just because it had a Miami vice case back. I want it. Let me know what you got guys. Bring it. <laughs> I love that. That's yeah. So if good. anybody listening has one of these or knows somebody, that's usually how it is, right? It's not that they have it, but they know somebody or they know somebody who knows somebody. If you know somebody, yeah. Yeah, DM uh, us at Spirit of Time or or James directly, James Lambden. Yeah, yeah. I I can't actually remember this. So I saw that and you know like when it came out, and I really don't remember it. I mean, I haven't seen it since. I don't remember like the plot. I was a fan, you know, in the eighties. I watched, you know, Miami Vice was like must see TV for me. Yep. You know, when I was in high school, and you know, that was super cool. It's kind of the, the television show, the watch I always remember. And I think, you know, Stockton and RJ talk about this watch from time to time, but is that, you know, the, the Abel chronographs, those are just super, super cool. Didn't one of them get one recently? Why do I, I think, think somebody did. did? Was it one yeah, of their 1911 chronographs? Exactly. Yeah. The, the Zenith, yep. Zenith yep. ones. Yeah. Those are cool. Yeah. They yeah, are I, super cool. Well, I actually have a soft spot for those because I, the watch that um, maybe kicked off, you know, the very beginnings of my interest in vintage and then sort of helped me identify the docs as the, you know, my point of entry was, um, Movado from the seventies that my father inherited from my grand, my grandfather, uh, with the Zenith El Primero movement in it. Um, I actually have, I have one here. This is not the one that, uh, my grandfather owned. This is a, an 18 carat one that I found, uh, earlier this year and, and managed to extract from the Netherlands on a, on a signed bracelet, but that's hot. Uh, yeah, it's a cool watch. And so anything with an El Primero movement stuck in there, um, that isn't a Daytona. That's sort of like one of the other things that Zenith was, you know, doing or supplying at a time where they themselves were, were practically out of business. Um, I think that's a cool story. And, and that, that a bell, uh, 1911, I've had a couple of those come through. They sell super fast. People really, uh, it's a sleeper, but people are onto it. Hey, Greg, yeah, do you I remember? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to ask if if you remember. I think the answer to this is yes, but that um, I think it was the Movado chronograph that was secreted up into orbit on that Skylab mission. Or, or again, our buddy Mike came in. Mike, how how you doing? I hope you're listening. Um, hey, Mike. We, uh, I want to say that's a. 
I think that's an El Primero powered watch. It's got to be. Do you remember the so. details of that? Oof, I don't remember all the details. James, um, remember, do you know this story? Uh, I've I've heard it. I believe it was a Daytron, which is um, the same That's model right. family as the one I just uh, threw up here. The one I've got is a sort of a 38 millimeter cushion case. Um, they call it the HS360 Daytron, uh, but there's a few versions of that. And if I if I'm remembering this correctly, it was one of the more uh, barrel shaped cases one of the slightly chunkier ones um which are also super under the radar and so cool uh super 70s um but i could be wrong so yeah mike sound off Please yeah we might get us. to see that watch that sounds right yeah yeah that's right hey here's an interesting question for you james and with that, we don't have to like call names out or anything, but like, so I've heard you say there's sort of, there's a homogeny and sort of car design these days. Right. And that's why it would make something, you know, of some of these other decades that we're, that we appreciate so much more interesting. Do you feel similarly about watches? It's a great question. That's a great question. I think the answer is yes and no, depending on the era. Um, there were certainly design themes that were pervasive in a particular period. I think going all the way back uh, into the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and onwards. But we may be experiencing today uh, a break from that. And I think it's a direct relation to how many people are interested in watches, how many people have decided to go in and develop independent watches that are very different than your core sport, core travel, core field, core dress watches. And and I'd like to hear what you guys think on this particular topic, but something I've been talking about a lot recently um, is a is an evolution, perhaps, uh, particularly amongst collectors who've been doing this for for some period of time, to exploring um, maybe more whimsical, more artistic, more avant-garde uh, styles of timekeeping, and whether that's going with vintage things that were really on the outs for a long time stylistically, or um, some of these. Um, avant-garde design indies today, uh, micro brands today. I think, I think watch design as a category is reaching um, new heights, you know, of, of variety. Uh, but yeah, if, if you sort of look at any particular category of a sport, a dress, a field in a particular decade or, you know, 20 year period, there's a lot of homogeny, you know, and, um, it's easy to forget that when you're looking historically at a, an era and you might just say, all right, that watch really, that, that, that was unique at the time, but in many cases they really weren't. Um, you know, the Royal Oak was first, right. But there's a lot of watches that came out right around that same time that took that, you know, sport luxury integrated bracelet thing, uh, by the horns and have never let go. So, is it just our story that we've we've built up on that particular watch that make it so important, or is it really a it became one of the designs? You know, it it was cutting edge and it was a great it's a great story for AP. Um, but man, you can get a Timex that's got a great in integrated bracelet now that's a really good watch, or or how about the the Tissot the PRX? That's a great watch, and that's a few hundred dollars I think. And then you have, you know. You have your Pateks and you have your Vacherons and you have your uh, IWC Ingenieurs, if you like the weirdo stuff, and the 222s and and everything in between. Bulova, uh, the Bulova Royal Oak, that's a fun one, you know? 
who the hell knows where that came from? But uh, I guess my point is that, yeah, there is homogeny for sure. Um, and and it, we may just be breaking out of that now. There's more interesting styles that don't fit into any particular category available now uh, that I think. That's a good perspective. And I think because you've been doing this for so long and you're so deep, you have that perspective, you know, and sometimes it's easy to forget. Like if you just cherry pick something, oh my gosh, yeah, this is, you know, but if you looked at things within a period and see the through lines and some of the common threads, you know, it becomes clear that they're, 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 you know, by decade or by design period, however you wanted to delineate it. Yeah. There's going to be, there's going to be some consistencies. Yeah. I mean, even the seventies, which I'm like super hot on right now with uh, all these super cool Piaget and Vacheron and AP sort of near piece uniques with interesting textures and, and dial materials and so on. Um, yeah, they're all kind of somewhat unique as a watch, but look how many unique watches there were. Right. So that became a trend into itself, which was let's make something, you know, with a funky material, with an unusual texture, uh, and that's ultra thin. And then just look how many of them there are. It, that was a design theme. Um, it just so happens that very few of them look identical, you know, next to each other. And I think that's really appealing. Yeah. Speaking of a brand that's like poised to uh, reintroduce something, I mean, Piaget, it would probably be so formulaic, I guess. But so some people wouldn't like it as a move. But uh, man, I mean, they could drop some kind of updated polo the way, you know, Chopard did with their, uh, you know, Alpine Eagle kind of take on what did they call it before? The San Moritz? Um, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, talk about something that would sell like hotcakes, I think. Well, I mean, I'm not saying anything that I know or don't know, but uh, do a little history on when the polo came out. And it's, uh, it's very likely that that will be commemorated in the very near future. Smart. Yeah, yeah. Some significant anniversary around the corner. You got it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I would... Everybody wanted Blancpain to redo. <laughs> and yeah, we got it, a... Uh, a colossally expensive gold version, which is still really cool. But I'm like, come on, man, give us a new watch. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That's a very Swiss thing to do is give the people not exactly what they want. <laughs> yep. hey, Greg, Full. do you mind if I interject with another of my questions? So, okay. That's uh Blanc Pond's another brand that I like a lot. I think they're underappreciated with the real, you know, how fancy, fancy stuff. I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, in the mainstream kind of um, appreciator, collector, watch enthusiast, don't realize all the stuff that they do for for markets that we never see, where they're mm-hmm. extremely low rate production, um, very complicated and a tremendous amount of handwork. And some of these things are just, you know, they're super nice. But the core lines of stuff like, you know, the dive watches, you know, the uh, the 50 Fathoms and, and Bathys Gaff and all that, that's one of those brands that with this, you know, the the Swatch collab, I think one discussion we heard a lot is, well, is this just to kind of an effort by the group to put Blancpain on the radar of a new generation of people, you know, so it isn't so stodgy. So it seems like Blancpain, and I, I think I agree, needs help in that regard. I'm wondering, what is your opinion on, are there other brands like mainstream brands that should be great or should be thought of great by more people like that, that need help similar, you know, to the help that Blancpain seems to need. 
Um, yeah, I mean, just in my own personal opinion, I think the biggest example is is Breguet. Um, you know, Breguet. I'm, I'm sure I've said this before somewhere, but I, I can't think of a a more historically significant brand uh, that is completely off the radar of uh, a consumer who's interested in buying a historically significant horology piece with fine finishing, um, you know, inside and out. Uh, I mean, hell, you, you cannot have a conversation about the history of watchmaking without using the word and the name Breguet two or three times, at least, if you're being even moderately academic about it. Um, they do very well in other markets, but it is, it, I think they really struggle here um, to connect with, you know, today's modern day enthusiast. And I think that there's maybe a well, it's a huge missed opportunity. And and uh, listen, and this is anecdotal, but the one watch that I think does well uh, is the tradition, you know, the open worked piece. But I, 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 I would posit that I think a lot of people buy that for the wrong reason. I think people think it is massively avant-garde. I think they think it's cutting edge and new. It's actually, you know, modeled it's, after- Yeah, really old, uh, traditional. A couple hundred year old pocket watch, you know, and- I think that speaks to the you know cyclical nature of taste and interest in, in in watch design for sure. But I don't think people are buying that because it's a tribute to heritage. I think they're buying it because it's a really cool open worked, you know, um, timepiece. Uh, and as long as they sell them, I mean, great, I guess. But look deeper at Breguet, and I think you'll you'll both be really impressed and a little disappointed. Um, because they're not doing a good job touting the stuff that they do better than anybody. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'm trying to shine a little bit of light on maybe the, the nineties, the eighties and nineties for Reggae. They did a lot of really neat stuff. Um, have a look at the repeater that, or, or the alarm rather that I just put on my, on my site. Um, uh, that is a neat, function. It's a neat design. Their dials um, usually lack symmetry, but sometimes that works beautifully uh, to their advantage. And then not always, uh, but it's also, I mean, I can't think of a better value in a high-end in-house Swiss perpetual in solid gold. You know, I, I it, it's a third or a quarter of the price of the equivalent AP, Patek, Vacheron, you know, and it's all there. And they're spectacular, but they haven't quite learned how to um, really interface with with today's modern collecting sensibilities. And I, I hope that they figure it out because it's an important brand. And I'm sure they're not they're not going anywhere, you know. But it would be nice to see them, you know, elevated a little bit in, in people's opinions. I think. Um, correct me if you think otherwise, but. Um... I, I think you're right. They need to be able to connect better with today's consumer. And but some thinking back to something you said earlier, where folks are digging deeper, finding things that maybe I think that people are fine. Not finally, the bigger a bigger mass is shifting away from give me stainless steel sports watches. And I don't know if that hurt Breguet for some time because that was very clearly really not their wheelhouse. You know, I don't know. I just felt like there was a big chunk, a big chunk of time where if you didn't go seek out Breguet, you certainly were not going to find it in the sort of mass. I, I mean, I agree with you, you know, in the dominant style and let's, 
you know, let's call a spade a spade here. It, the popularity of the steel sports watch as a category has saved the Swiss watchmaking industry in the last several decades. Uh, so no hate on steel sports watches. I have a lot of them. Um, but you know, th there's missed opportunities there as well. I mean, the type 20, um, could have been done a lot differently than the way they did it at that time. Um, and I think they would have benefited by that. And, you know, listen, I've, I've heard plenty of CEOs say, you know, I, I won't make a steel watch, you know, or <laughs> over my dead body, will we make a steel sports watch? But, you know, you have to, you have to evolve and adapt. And as a student of, of watch history, you know, I, I, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't reference the courts crisis, you know, and it, that seems pretty far removed from the massive popularity of, of, of mechanical watchmaking today. But, um, and if anything, the introduction of this, the smartwatch had the opposite effect, you know, and it increased popularity of mechanical watches, which I love. Um, but you know, we're, we, we sort of live in a constant fear of, uh, all of this popularity just dissipating and this entire thing going up in smoke. So if you're running a, an important heritage brand, I think you owe it to your brand's history to continue to evolve. Um, and the brands that do that, even if they face criticism for a new design or a new, um, you know, price point or, or a new material usage, or you, you sort of make a hard left from a, you know, a branding standpoint, you're, you have to evolve. You have to keep moving. And there are very few brands that can survive on making the same fucking watch for 70 years. Very few brands. <laughs> Yeah. And we could probably count them, you know, by name. I can think, um, do you I can think of two. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys follow or listen to the Scott Galloway, you know, the Prof G and what used to be NYU professor. He's sort of like a business guy. I know. I, who he is. I, I haven't, I haven't listened to him. He's good. He's interesting. You know, it's obviously really geared on the business side of things and sort of the markets, but anyway, you know, the, the luxury watch market really popped up on his feed and again, to your point, you know, once it starts reaching some of these mainstream media, we see it all over. Right? You see it on Forbes and Wall Street Journal, whatever. But it's just another indicator of sort of the popularity of, of, of watches and luxury watches and mechanical watches. And to your point, I think it's counterintuitive, but the Apple Watch spiked interest. And all of a sudden, it's just brought all these people into the fold, um, you know, for better and for worse, mostly for better. And, um, you know, it was just interesting that, you know, people talk about watches now more than I would have ever guessed. And it's uh, it's a very cool thing. It's a very cool thing. Uh, you know, I, I've said this on a couple other podcasts, but, you know, I think, um, you know, Matt and I were probably uh, keyboard warriors on the same forums at the same time. Uh, and in those, you know, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, if there was like one bit of news that came out of the watch industry uh, a month, it was like a pretty big month. You know, we, we had to get the magazines to get it because they hadn't figured out the internet yet. Um, That's, I, I refer to that all the time. I mean, I, I think of, you know, the early days of, of my enthusiasm was, and I, there were, you know, uh, fora and websites going back before this, but they, if you didn't, if you weren't aware of them, yeah, you weren't, you weren't looking for it. Like in, in 2002 or three, you know, you probably weren't looking for this stuff, but yeah, you were, you were getting watch time or, you know, uh, if, if you had some, you know, exotic newsstand that had the German language, what is it, Ur, you know, or, or yeah, 
you know, maybe something like that. And that was about all there was. And, you know, otherwise you just, you went to the AD and if they were patient, maybe you bought them some coffee and donuts and you shot the breeze and looked at watches and that was it. That's right. And so between blogs and uh, new print publications that are, you know, really with it and um, WhatsApp groups and Instagram and all of these other, you know, two or three things are happening a day. And I think that it's exciting. It's an incredibly dynamic time to be interested in watches in the watch industry. Um, and I've, I've been saying this for years now, and I feel no differently. It's, there's more people interested in mechanical watches than at any point in human history. And that's a great thing. Um, but it, it, you know, in order to these things come in waves and I, I, you know, if I was running an important, historically significant Swiss watch brand, I would be, I would be light on my feet, even when the getting is good. Well, let's go back to Breguet for a second. And where do you think, I mean, one of the things that I think of is, and maybe agree or disagree, I don't know. But one thing that might benefit them is if they had something that was still true to their values as a watchmaker, but that was more approachable to a wider number of people as an entree to the brand, Mm. you know, something I, you know, it's, it so hackneyed to say like something like, you know, a, uh, a a steel OP from Rolex is the kind of thing that, you know, granted the, even those can be hard to get now, but do do they need something that, you know, can be, can be priced at like, you know, eight or 10,000 that maybe, you know, an everyday watch instead of something super fancy, you know, or, or, you know, uh, extremely intricate, but something that could be worn by a wider range of people on, on, you know, everyday circumstances. I think it's totally possible. I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that a eight or $9,000 Breguet is something that works, but I think you could have a 12 or $13,000 Breguet in precious metal. Yeah. Let's, let's start there. I mean, that's, so I mean, look at, look at at Langa. Okay. Um, when you think of Langa, you think of a Langa one, you think of a datagraph. You might think of an 1815 uh, chrono or or um, you know something a higher complication or an Odysseus. Sight work. If you're, if you're into it, <laughs> yeah, sight work. But you can get into you know a, a Saxonia thin, you know, in a in a great size in a precious metal, you know, for a pretty pretty approachable price if if that's what you're looking for. I mean. It, and I think Breguet could stand to have something, you know, in that realm. I think, I think anybody, you know, in that range could have, could stand to have something in that realm that is just sort of perfection of design, um, that speaks to the brand, uh, has the hallmarks of the brand, you know, but at, a, at an accessible price point for sure. And accessible means something different to everyone. And I recognize that, um, you know, for me. I'm probably not going to spend twelve or thirteen thousand dollars on on that watch. I'm probably going to, you know, I'm going to cough up another ten when I can and and buy a pre-owned Longa One or whatever, you know. Um, now you can't do that anymore, not not at that price point, but you could for a while. Um, but by the way, PSA uh, pre-owned Longa Ones are still less than than new Longa Ones in most cases. Yes, the prices have gone up. Yes, they're in the thirties now, not the twenties. But like a new Longa One is, you know, it's pushing fifty thousand. Um, it's a lot of watch guys, just just saying, um, but a different price point. So yeah, I I think getting a little bit more philosophical about it, you know, instead of literal, 
yeah, I think I think it would behoove a lot of brands to have um, a signature piece, a signature entry piece that has all the important hallmarks of a brand um, that's more widely available and priced in- intelligently. So um, shifting gears a little bit, maybe um, literally and figuratively, you're you're a massive car guy. Um, curious because people usually are pretty polarized on this topic. Are there? Do you have a favorite sort of watch car collaboration connection? Do you think they're all horrid? Is there something that stands out that's done well or that you really appreciate? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Um, I I think I'm actually outspoken in my hatred for most of them. Uh, mostly mostly because they're badge engineered, right? You know, anytime you put the Ferrari logo on something, it usually ruins it. Um, whether you're a Gerard Perigo, a Panerai, or an RM, it seems to be uh, pretty much how it works. Although, and you didn't hear me say this, I think the new Endurance GT chronograph from Hublot is actually pretty good as far as a Ferrari watch goes, but I didn't, you didn't hear that from me. That stays um, here, guys. <laughs> I, I do like automotive inspired watches. Um, I think Autodromo does an incredible job. Um, and there are, you know, of course I, I usually grab a, you know, um, yeah, you know, something that's like a vintage Hoyer is going to be my go-to for, you know, when I go out driving or, or something like that. Um, I do have, I do have one, uh, automotive collaboration watch in my personal collection and it's the old, uh, titanium Jaeger LeCultra Amvox. Oh man, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and I remember when that watch came out. Uh, with the green dial, which I don't have. I have the, the gray dial. But I remember when that watch came out, I saw it probably on the pages of Watch Time because where else uh, are you going to see it? And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Um, and then, you know, many years later, I ended up owning an Aston Martin. So I went back and and sort of looked at all of those things and uh, found, a, found a, a naked gray one that had also looked like it had been uh, through... Uh, Battle of the Bulge, but I, uh, I sent it to my my case guy who was able to work some some magic on that titanium case and uh, came out looking pretty fresh. So that's a fun one. It's a cool complication. I love a Memovox, uh, Me and it's titanium, so it's big but it's light. Is it hard to is it hard to work on a titanium case? Do you know? Yes, absolutely. I it, imagine. It, yeah, titanium has a, a hardness uh, factor um, that makes it incredibly hard to work with. I suspect that what my watchmaker actually did was fill some of the gouges on this case with, uh, with white gold and then, and then aged the gold, um, put some other stuff in it. I, I'm, I'm honestly not sure to, to sort of blend it in with the tonality of the, of the gray titanium. It's flawless. He's a magician, but I, I don't know how you work on titanium. So that's my guess. That, hey, that's good enough for us. We're not meteorologists or I know meteorologists. Metallurgist, thank you. I needed yeah. that help there. Yeah. <laughs> metal, metal, metallurgist sounds like maybe like like refrigerators are falling out of the sky or, or something. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds about right. I have this uh, this search saved. I want to. I think it's probably a little too chunky for me, but I have a like. A, there's this Zen three hundred three Corvette edition. They did they did this this those set of you know automotive inspired Zen three hundred threes, and uh, and the, and they're all pretty pretty tame, pretty like demure. And the right. Corvette one just has the, you know, the Corvette underneath the date window there. 
Um, and then, you know, I think the, the, the badge on the, on the rotor, I would love to grab one of those, but, um, and I'll see, I see them from time to time. That's yeah, cool. Thank you. Uh, I have a, I have a Fortis from the, probably the early nineties with a Mercedes logo on the dial. I don't know the whole story there, but that's a cool one. Um, what else did I just get? I got a, uh, it's in the shop. It's a, uh, oh, crap. What is it? It's a Lamania powered. Is it a 5100? Uh, yeah, it's a 5100 yellow gold case uh or yellow gold yellow gold capped case. Um is it a Tag Heuer? It was probably assembled by Heuer, but it's private labeled and I'm trying to remember I think it's from Mercedes-Benz. Um I have to I I can't remember. I No. No, now I remember. It was a it was a Marlboro F1 team. Uh yeah. And it was probably built by Hoyer, but it was a contract yellow yellow gold capped case with a with a Lamania fifty one hundred in it, uh, and I think it was actually a prize watch, um, you know, from some GP. Yeah, that's what it was. That's <laughs> sick. That's I'd so love to cool. see a picture of that. That's I I really like that. That's one of my favorite movements of all time. Yeah, cool watch. Definitely. Yeah. You know, you know, what's another cool automotive collaboration that I've never actually seen in the metal, and for some reason they're all in like Hungary. And Romania, I don't know why, but like if you find them, they're almost always in in uh, the you know Eastern European nations. Um, are these Audi sport watches um, from the eighties and, and early nineties? Uh, and there, a lot of them are Lamanias. A lot of them sort of have uh, Porsche design vibes um, or IWC vibes, but they're like so Group B that it hurts. Um, and I I get a kick out of those. And but they're big money. I, I can't bring myself to spend, you know, 15 or $20,000 on one of these oddball, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, Lamania offshoots with a, you know, a gray PVD case from 1988, you know, that says Audi sport on it. It's just, I, it's, I want it, but not that bad. Yeah, that's all right. It's right. It's amazing, but you know, not were those made by Zinn some maybe. of those? And I, cause I've seen some of those too. I have to believe so. Right. And it, it tracks that they'd be in, in Eastern Europe, you know, um, you know, if Sin was was doing the the construction, and then the the wall came down, and they moved, uh, they moved east. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, geez, they, you know, they might have moved that way anyway. You know, fungible, uh, yeah, tangible goods probably right. you know more more valuable in some respects than the currencies back then. No doubt, we could no see doubt. that people you know traveling coming over for uh, you know for rallying or, or racing or, or what have you and. Yeah. Grabbing something and, and taking it back. Yeah. Super cool though. God, they're neat. Our buddy was- uh, Chase has one of those old Ben Russes. Um, they're simple three handers and they look like they can't, I can't even imagine what the movement it is. It's, it's a very simple, you know, not a lot of jeweled movement, but uh, they must've done this, this, this set of, I was think it was Aston, Mercedes, Jaguar, Corvette, um, I'm missing one or two others and it, it had to have been, I don't know. I've seen the advertisements. Chase has a Mercedes one. I haven't even seen any others really for sale. Actually, there might be a Jaguar one up for sale on like eBay right now, but there, I can't imagine a lot of them made it out of the, out of the time period. Cause they were not, they were not super robust, you know, uh, I- I- impressive pieces, but just the, the idea that Benrus had this set of the Benrus competition, I think, you know, the set of, you know, sort of collector edition car themed watches is, is pretty neat. Look at that. I just, They're neat, I, right? I just eBayed this. I wonder if this was like um, 
a dealer kind of thing or, right. or even like a, co a collector community kind of thing. Oh, here it is. Yeah, here it is. I'm looking at the case back of this chrome plated uh, bezel stainless steel back. Uh, Ron Gray, top Jaguar sales, 1959 from Tom Wolf uh, in the UK. Yeah, yeah, there it is. That's that very cool. That is dope. And it's got a broad arrow handset. It does. The broad arrow hair kills Shit. it. It just does. All right. I did not know that existed. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. So no problem. Are, uh, Justifying, uh, enabling. Yeah. You've got the old Porsche, man. Do you still have, or am I correct in remembering, and maybe I'm misremembering, but that you also have like uh, one or more BMWs from the mid 80s, like five series? Yeah. My first car, um, you know, was a second or probably third hand at that point. Um, BMW 535 IS, the E28 generation. Um, it was, you know, we, I grew up in a, in a household in, in Vermont where, you know, we were very much middle class. Um, but we really liked European cars. So we always had three, uh, older European cars and you needed to have three because one would always be in the shop. Um, you know, and they were 15 plus years old, secondhand, third hand cars. Um, but when I got my driver's license, we had a 94 long wheelbase County classic Range Rover, a 95 Mercedes E320 wagon and this E28 535 IS. And that one was the oldest and thus the least expensive to put a 16 year old insured driver on. It also happened to be the fastest, have a manual transmission and aftermarket wheels. So <laughs> I was pretty happy with that. And that kick started, I mean, it just added fuel to a, a passion I'd already had, uh, was learning how to drive a great analog car. Uh, so I still have that. Um, and uh, I love it very fiercely. It's probably my, my favorite possession uh, outside of my childhood, you know, teddy bear. So it's, uh, it's a very important, um, part of my life and I'll never get rid of that one. But then, um, I did add, uh, my, my teenage dream car, which was the, uh, the E39 M5, uh, about uh, six or seven years ago, I bought that and that's just been great as well. Yeah. M5 is a great car. Well, the, to bring this all and kind of put a bow or maybe not put a bow on it, but the, as far as the, the car and watch tie-ups, I can think of good and very schlocky, uh, examples of car related watches from, you know, Jaguar and Porsche and Mercedes and Audi and Corvette. Sorry, Greg. And all the, I don't, I can't think, I'm sure they must be out there, but I can't think of too many Schlockfest type watches that are BMW oriented. Can you? Uh, there were a few, there were a few, um, they did a lot of their own like BMW lifestyle collection watches, which were pretty bad. Um, you know, some, <laughs> some pretty cheap crap, uh, from that category for sure. Um, they looked good at the time, but they just, you know, they were quartz, they were, you know, low, low quality components. They didn't age well. And then, um, ball watches actually did a collaboration with BMW, um, and I remember were, that now they, let's see, there was BMW Sauber, uh, F1 team. Then they had, um, more BMW, you know, motorsport themed watches. There were, uh, some like quartz digital, like, uh, analog, any, any digi kind of watches with the, the motorsport, um, branding on them, 
that were kind of neat and very sort of 80s design forward sort of like bullhead chronograph kind of things um that are actually pretty neat looking but you know electronic internal so it's a hit or miss on this, as to whether or not it works uh but some of yeah, those yeah, were you know pvd or, or what have you which are kind of neat yeah if you happen to store it like in a damp basement or something like that they're probably wrecked that's too bad well i you've disabused me of my happy notion that there wasn't a lot of bmw schlock i'm bmw is the <laughs> brand that i i kind of my heart gravitates to that was, my first car was a, an old 2002 oh yeah 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 yep. what year was what year was yours 76. Yeah. Yeah. 76, 77. I think 76. 76 would have been the last year in the US for sure. Um, square taillight, um, big bumper car. I had a- Yeah, it was a big, it was one of the big bumper cars and it was this uh, kind of a, a metallic, this is how I remember it, but I mean, it was so old at the time. And it's funny because at the time that car would have been about 10 years old when I was driving it in like 86, 87. Yeah. And it was, it, it looked and felt so much older than a car would, let's say today in 2023, than a car from like, let's say 2012 sure. would look and feel. I mean, it was it was just a, this colossally old thing. Um, but it was, yeah, this kind of like, a, I remember it as like a, a vaguely metallic brown, kind of a, a bronze color. Sure. You know, yeah, manual yeah. sunroof. Uh-huh. And yeah, all, all that stuff, four speed manual. Yep. Yep. My parents had a 76, uh, when I was a kid and then, uh, I had a 73 for a short time back, right, be- right before they exploded in value. I, I, uh, I bought it for $1,250 from my mechanic and, uh, I sold it for a loss, uh, when I found some rot in the frame rail, but I sold that car for $750. If I had held on to that for about 24 more months, I would have gotten four grand for it as it sat because that was right before they popped off with that uh, sort of hipster crowd that um, honestly has done a lot to save them. So I uh, I say that lovingly, but um, they were worthless. The guy I sold it to turned it into a dirt track racer. Um, whoops. <laughs> I have to say, I feel like you have a knack for finding things, maybe because your finger's always on the pulse, but sort of before things pop, you know? Oh, that's like a very Brooklyn thing to say. I, I live in Manhattan. I, I definitely uh, did not just say that I, I found it first, like, uh, you know, before the band yeah. blew up. I didn't say that. Okay, you said that, Greg. I said it. I said <laughs> it. But, but, but I mean, we've talked about it. Like, I feel like um, maybe who's, you were Go on back pod. back to Red Hook, Greg. About- yeah. No, no, no. We were talking Polar Explorers on another pod and you were like, hey, listen, I'm watching these things kind of go up. And even even the M5, I want to say maybe when you grabbed it, you were looking at some some other things, but that was also on your list and you were seeing, I just, I guess what I'm trying to point, I'm giving you like a credit, like a props here, but if you no, don't want to take man. it, you don't have Thanks, to. man. No, I appreciate <laughs> that. I, um, I think, you know, even every once in a while, a, a blind pig finds a truffle, you know? Well, you just need a good nose. It's true. It's true. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yeah. Well, hey, Greg, do you mind if I uh, I take us into the um, the thing that's sort of near and dear to me? So, I mean, it, James, it's it's no secret. I mean, every, everybody probably you know knows who you are, and a lot of people I think will have heard your watch story. But the thing that I always kind of come back to your feed is it's it's clear just looking, even when you're not talking about it, which is actually not that often when you think about it. But like the aesthetic, you know, of who you are about 50% of the time is, you know, it's 
like borders on Magnum PI cosplay, which is kind of <laughs> what I do too. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. okay, this, this has got to be a cool guy. So at some point in the past, not too long ago, but a few years ago, right? You did, you went all in like on a vacation experience where, you know, you had the shirt, you flew in the helicopter and all of that stuff. So that's the Magnum PI thing. I love yeah. you. I bow down to the, uh. the, the king of the Magnum PI vibe challenge. <laughs> um, you have to post some stuff for that, by the way. That's the hashtag Magnum PI I, I vibe I challenge. I I know you tagged me in a few things and I, I don't know what yeah. was happening in my life at that moment, but I was like, I'll, I got to come back to this, but I, I didn't. So I, I owe that to right you for on. sure. Well, the other thing though, I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? And that is sort of the, the avatar logo, what have you for, for your feed is that Spectre logo. Uh-huh. And um, we've got, I've got a couple questions really that relate to that. But if you could do the same sort of thing, bond with, you know, a bond theme, is there a, like a, Money's no object, no holds barred bond experience vacation that you would want to take or trip or or whatever. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, it's funny you ask because I, I may actually be doing some of that next year. Uh, I got hooked up with um, this great guy, David Zuritsky from the bond experience. Um, I follow YouTube, him. You, YouTube cha- channel. He's a great guy. Uh, he does a lot of these sort of, um, gatheralls where all these bond uh, people come together and, and do different things, whether it's sort of interacting with the, uh, the brands that, you know, produce um, James Bond apparel or gadgetry or what have you, or lifestyle stuff or, um, and, and travel experiences. So they, they just had this big 50th anniversary uh, celebration of live and let die, which of course is uh, the only bond movie ever filmed in New York. So we actually played host to a, a bunch of these uh, bond enthusiasts here in our New York offices. And, uh, and then the, a bunch of them went on to tour a bunch of filming locations down in New Orleans and, you know, did it, did it right. Um, and there's some, some opportunities around the corner that, uh, He's mentioned to me that might be a chance to go do some of these things, um, sort of actually wearing that, the you know the bond um sort of badge on it uh but either way yeah i mean i think i gotta go to peace gloria right i uh i gotta get up there to the honor majesty's secret service uh alpine blofeld lair um see if that uh luge track is still working Um, but i think i think look i think james bond in in 2023 it's complicated Right. There's a, I, I went back and I read a bunch of the books uh, last summer and there's a tremendous amount of chauvinism and sexism and racism and a lot of isms in there that really don't fly with today's culture. But it's not even so much an issue of looking past it, um, but it's sort of embracing the other elements of Fleming's storytelling and, and the elements that which that make this character so compelling despite uh, decades and decades of flaw. Um, and personality flaw that are no longer even remotely acceptable in today's society. But looking at the the fun parts and looking at the um, the components of the stories that uh, whether they translate well into film or not have a real air of like collector nerd like draw. You know, there's this one sequence. I think it's in in the original Casino Royale novel, where Bond is just describing, or Fleming is describing the the makeup of this apart or this um suite at the hotel, 
you know, in Monaco or, or Monte Carlo or wherever uh, he was. And, and, you know, he goes on and on about the furn- the furnishings uh, in this suite, right down to the Asprey weather clock, weather station, you know, in the radio. And, and there's just this appreciation for stuff, um, high quality stuff, maybe some luxury stuff. But at the same time, anybody who's read these novels knows that there's an, an incredible amount of detail put on Bond's meals, right? And his wardrobe. And I think that there's an appeal there for men of a certain age who begin to care a lot more about how they're putting themselves out in the world um, sartorially and the experiences that they have. They're looking to elevate them, maybe not from a luxury standpoint, but from like an experiential standpoint, how do I get the depth um, uh, of, of an experience in sort of a Bond-like way and then also blend that with some adventure and, and some action? And I think that for me, a Bond trip would have to be around the world because, you know, he, there's no movie where he's in just one place. You know, he's always globetrotting. So I love the idea of, um, you know, flying to the Alps and doing some skiing and doing some spa stuff and then flying up to London and, and driving an old Aston Martin up to Scotland, you know, or or going to Rio. You know, there's a there's a whole whole culture there that I would love to explore and and really get into. And I, I just watched this Road to a Million thing hosted by Brian Cox on Amazon, which is like not great, but uh kind of still watched all of it in a binge. So <laughs> I've yeah. I've seen the first couple episodes. Yeah, it, it doesn't get better, but it's still kind of compelling. <laughs> <laughs> so here's yeah, measure your snake. Oh God, I I couldn't watch that part, but uh, I've got the Indiana Jones fear of snakes thing. That was a hard that was a hard for me to to watch. It was actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Greg, I don't know if you've ever thought of that question enough to to formulate an answer, but for me, I think it would have to be. So my favorite, uh, if I just had to pick one, has got to be for your eyes only, just because of the locations. Oh, so good. And so you know, I would I would love to do something like, you know, uh, uh, going up to northern Italy, you know, into the Alps, Cortina. Uh, to me, that was one of the best chase scenes ever. Was you know the motorcycle, then skis you know, down the track, the jump, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, Greek islands do some diving and, yeah. you know, maybe, uh, maybe wind the whole thing up with a tour of, of Meteora, you know, the, the monastery, you know, on these huge, I think uh, they must be basalt, yeah. you know, up, up thrust formations that come up out of the ground there. It's just incredible. You could, uh, you could drive a Doshavo through a vineyard. Yes. Yes. That's right. There's the, the Spain <laughs> component too, right? Yeah. So yeah, all, all very good. Yeah. It's a, it's a sort of, it's a, it's a very romantic, um, thing that it appeals to a lot of people, um, men and women, I think, but reading the books, um, there's so much nuance and he's, he's a brilliant storyteller, um, who, you know, was certainly a product of his time and, and probably a bit of a piece of shit, but, um, he created a, be true. Yeah, you can hold two truths here and an incredibly compelling character he's created that has lasted, you know, a long time and there's no sign of that going away. And I think that the the writers and, and directors and storytellers that are, are creating these films and books today um, are doing are doing the evolution of culture well, you know, and 
uh, you know, it goes back to, um, you know, and this, and they've been doing it for 30 years, by the way, you know, like yeah. GoldenEye, the first thing that Judy Dench says to, <laughs> to Pierce Brosnan is, I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, you know, and that was, you know, right on. You know, <laughs> it's great. You yeah. Had me, yeah. You had me well, right they, there. They do it all justice. I think, you know, in the modern era, because they present the flaws as flaws. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? It's not just something that's just there. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it's just, yeah, as you say, two things can be true at once. He's, you know, still a, a cool guy, duty on your country, you know, for, uh, for queen and country, king and country now, I guess. Yep. And, uh, you know, yeah, fine living while you're at it and, you know, punch a bad guy in the face. It's n- never a bad thing. Absolutely. Well, dude, we're pushing like an hour and a half now. Greg, do you have any final questions or last minute things? No, that's a that's a great place to sort of tie a bow on it for now. Hopefully we can link back up. And I mean, I I, th- I don't know about you, but I had about 10 more questions. So we might have to just, you know, wait for, you, you know, want to do two. like a, you want to do like a, uh, like a, a quick shoot them off round? Yeah, we could do that. Yeah, go for it, Greg. All right. Um, let's do favorite watches from cinema uh tv or cinema tv or cinema um i'm gonna go with the 1675 from thomas magnum boom favorite um cars from tv or cinema somewhere between the keaton era 89 batmobile the 59 ecto one uh cadillac uh and the 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 delorean i mean i'm a product of the 80s what do you want from me <laughs> Wait, I'm going to interrupt for two seconds, Greg. Have you seen it's somewhere in Pasadena? Somebody has a relatively modern. Um, oh, I don't remember exactly what it is because it's so customized and and visually modified. It might be a you know like an early to mid '90s Toyota Land Cruiser, but it is it's painted and has all of the accoutrement for the the Ecto One. No, and, I haven't seen yeah, this. Yeah, you know, with the with the logo and everything that you know, the no ghost kind of thing and all that stuff. So I'd, I've seen it driving around, like on say, like California and Los Robles down there. Love it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled. Somebody's got one. Anyway, keep Love going. Uh, how about uh, bracelet or or strap? Uh, more often than not, bracelet. And then we'll wrap it up. Number one '80s movie of all time. Pretty hard, uh, but I'll go with uh, go with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Solid, good answer. I don't know that it's the best thing in that I would actually think it's the best movie. That the first thing that popped into my mind was Wolverines, Red Dawn. <laughs> well, that's why you're you, Matt, and please stay that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, I think just being a little bit older, that whole you know Cold War. I mean, we were all sure that we were either going to get nuked or invaded, or we were going to be fighting some war in Europe. Yep. In the nineties. Yep. Excellent. Well, man, this is incredible. We will so uh, we'll fun. have to have you back on. You're you're a great dude, and I'm really happy we were able to finally connect and and make this happen. Everybody, I think, definitely needs to. If you don't bookmark the analog shift site, you're doing it wrong. Just go periodically and just see what's there. Even if you're not shopping, you could still be learning. Yeah. The that. content yeah. stuff's awesome too. Thank you. Yeah. We, uh, we had a few fits and starts with content creation over the years, but we've got a great thing going with our transmissions blog, a uh, little bit of lifestyle, plenty of watches, 
we have some fun with it. We did a history of the Aloha shirt recently, Matt. I was thinking of you. Um, oh, I'll have to check that. We do some cocktail stuff. Yeah, we, we you know we're just dabbling. We're we're having fun with this. Like I said, we're not saving lives. We're we're uh, telling stories. So. Thank you for well, that. Well, if I can say anything, I can tell. Obviously, you're having fun. You're working hard, obviously, you know, but we're having fun while you're doing it. And so that's that's that makes it the sort of the secret sauce and what makes it fun to be around you. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure and uh, great to great to connect properly. Been following you guys on Instagram for for years and years, and uh, keep on keeping on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, brother. All right, I'm going to have a sip of this coffee. Cheers to you. Salute. Salute. Happy holidays and cheers. Take care, fellas. Bye. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help. You can find us on Instagram at Spirit of Time Podcast and contact us at Spirit of Time Podcast at gmail.com. As always, please drink responsibly. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>